0: So we're gonna get started on the case study that we posted to the Facebook group. Um, and so I'm just gonna kind of read it super fast and then we're gonna we're gonna play it by ear if you will. So Kevin and I are gonna discuss this um, and some pieces that we see as well as the management and the appropriate treatment and such. So you're dispatched to a home of a 13 year old male with decreased LOC. Father reports he called because his son's not acting quite right, and he's concerned he's taken something. You find the patient sitting in a recliner. He looks at you when you enter the room. Patient states he's super hungry, tired, and doesn't want to do anything. Father reports that he normally is very active, plays sports, but missed two games because he felt too tired. Patient then suddenly began vomiting, and you notice food in the vomit, but otherwise normal, and the vitals are as below. So, Kevin, I'm going to throw it to you first. What, what are you thinking?
1: Um, well, I mean, so he's a, he's a teenage kid and it seems like he's otherwise healthy. There's nothing, you know, historically that I guess uh, his parents are reporting besides just kind of the, the tired and the hungry and all that kind of stuff. And the thing that really, I guess, kind of stuck out to me was the constantly hungry, constantly tired, vomiting and all that. It kind of just fits with that new onset, uh, diabetes thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, I think with both of our exposures to pediatrics, it really leans on that side. There were so many good options in the group. I just want to kind of throw a couple of those out there. Um, Adrenal crisis, Addison's disease can also present in a similar fashion, um, as well as really any autoimmune disease. I know somebody put up Lyme disease, um, definite disease player. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's near and dear to my heart. My nephew has it, um, from a tick bite, of course. And, uh, so it's, it's one of those things that like, it, it wasn't in the front of my brain when I, you know, with any diagnoses, but now because it's very personal to me, of course, it is something I think about now.
1: Yeah, there were some of, I, I actually was kind of impressed. There was a lot of comments in there that were, um, I don't want to say this, like. I always encourage when I'm teaching my paramedic students um, to kind of keep a really broad, open view of things and not get nailed into something super early. And uh, I kind of think that as soon as I read the case review, I just kind of hopped right into the you know type one first time diabetic crisis type thing and chasing down DKA. And I just kind of, you know, I focused myself too far into it and I was actually kind of impressed by how broad everybody's spectrum was when they were looking at it.
0: Yeah, definitely. You have those sepsis. Um, I love seeing the cold sepsis um, term. I like that that's getting into the pre-hospital world because I know for the longest time it was a foreign um, concept in respect. Everyone thought to be septic, you had to be febrile, and that's not the case. Um, Definitely saw some uh, little rabbit holes. Um, The head injury thing, it's good to rule it out. Um, But I definitely saw a lot of people hammer in on the um, possible ingestion. So what do you think about that?
1: Uh, No, I think that's actually a great idea, Um, especially he's a teenager. Teens start to, you know, start to experiment with things and whatnot. The kind of tired and distant and all that kind of stuff I agree with. And then also the suddenly began vomiting. Um, yeah, absolutely. If he ingested something, maybe pop some pills that he shouldn't have or whatever. Your stomach might get queasy and want to, want to puke and stuff. So, so those are good ideas.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, with everything, you know, it's taking the information that you're given, um, and processing it. Right. Um, so every time I look at this and go, okay, he's super hungry, tired, And then the two games, I definitely want to investigate that with the dad. And how long ago were those games? Were they a Friday, Saturday, missed two games just recently? Or has it been like two, three weeks of the child not being himself or not feeling well? Um, So time frame.
1: frame, Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Time frame is a huge thing right there. I mean, because just like you said, like if it was two games yesterday, if it was a doubleheader or something like that. 24 hours of sickness versus three weeks of sickness, that's kind of that's a big difference.
0: Yeah, and I do want to throw out there, the reason we leave, um, for everybody who is participating, the reason we leave these case studies slightly vague is because if I spoon-fed or Kevin spoon-fed all the information um, to where you could figure out exactly what's going on, it defeats the purpose. Like We want everyone to grow their practice and have multiple differentials and potentials for this patient. Um, so, yeah, the ingestion thing, the hyperemesis I saw secondary to marijuana. Um, I know in Washington State we see that. Um, I <laughs> probably do too in Colorado. Yeah, we
1: see it to Colorado. be First. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, we do a lot of that. And I actually just taught a, uh, a toxicology class uh, last two months ago to all my guys. At, at the station for, because we're seeing a ton of it. We're seeing all the, the concentrates and you know, all the, the butane hash oil and all that other kind of stuff. But uh, somebody posted in the, the Facebook comments, what about marijuana edibles? I think that the blood pressure right there of 88 over 60 kind of really rules that out because generally uh, I'm seeing either just normal, tensive or slightly hypertensive with patients.
0: Yeah, um, and Bryce put the comment, vomiting could also be fo- from hypoperfusion to the gut, which is huge. I think realizing that physiology plays a big part, that you could have gut ischemia that would cause that um, vomiting. And so in 88 over 60, you, you start to uh, look at the map and see, you know, hey, is this, is this kid perfusing or not? Heart rate 144, I don't really like that in a 13 year old. Um, and he is uh, tachypnic at 28. I know some people said normal vitals. Um, I saw some reference to that, like normal respiratory rate. That's actually moderately elevated in a 13-year-old. I wouldn't expect them to be uh, resting with a, with a respiratory rate of 28.
1: Right. Generally, like the, the American Academy of Pediatrics is all over the – as soon as somebody hits their you – know, puberty is kind of when we start treating all their vital signs as an adult. And at 13, I would say that, yeah, 12 to 20 is pretty much going to be our normal respiratory rate on that. So i agree.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and signs of puberty is all you're looking for. So very minimal things anymore, underarm, underarm hair, those things is what they, the academy um, classifies as puberty. It's not specific to menstrual cycle or um, testosterone levels. It has to do with just that mild physical changes. So um so let's kind of dig into, um, obviously, and kudos to the people who did um, pick out the type one diabetic. Um, it, is, it is really great. It is a common onset, of course, uh, in juvenile ages. Remember, please remember, it is not only juvenile onset, though. You can, they are having people in their 30s get type one diabetes, so, um, and even older. So I just, I really like to emphasize that because people go, oh, it can't happen. Well, it does. Um, so let's dive into that type one diabetes. Um, so I know you and I kind of discussed beforehand. We were just bouncing stuff off each other, but I'm gonna talk dinosaur because I guess I I qualify as a dinosaur almost now. Oh, um, but you know, back in the day, it was they had elevated blood sugar, so liter fluids, Liter fluids, right, yeah. you can. What do you think?
1: Uh, yeah. So that's actually a really good point. Like when I was taught, uh, I went to paramedic school 10 years ago, I guess now. And like, yeah, it was just 10 years ago. They were adamant about like, Hey, if they've got, you know, an elevated blood sugar, uh, we need to, the the phrase always was, we need to dilute that sugar. And it's like, okay, so theoretically, yes, the actual blood glucose number that's going to come back to us uh, is probably going to start to come back lower and lower and lower. But just because the sugar number is actually coming back a little bit lower doesn't mean that we're actually positively affecting the physiology and we might actually be like causing more problems, just kind of like we talked about earlier.
0: Oh, definitely. I think we put a Band-Aid on a problem um, that makes us feel better. Um, Yeah.
1: And it ends up that we might actually be causing harm.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you're already taking somebody in an acidotic state. And unfortunately, adding normal saline, which we all know is uh, poison, um, but what yeah. a lot of us have. And so you make them more acidotic.
1: Mm-hmm. And but so that- for just to, to pop in on that, in case anybody that's you know, paying attention isn't aware, uh, so normal saline has a pH of about five and a half. Uh, I mean, our, our blood pH is 735 to 745. And so obviously throwing in an acid. You know, acid into the body is not a great thing, and then also when uh, normal saline's metabolized in the body, it ends up releasing a lot of chloride ions, which causes what they call hyperchloremic acidosis, and it completely kills um, the body's ability to reuptake the bicarb, and it actually causes worsening acidosis. So, so I agree with Casey Joe. It's absolutely a problem to to just pound somebody with normal saline when it's you know it's just probably causing more harm than good.
0: Yeah, and I think just not doing that blind treatment anymore of, we do know they're volume depleted. Right. Like, their study after study tells you that, a, especially a new onset mm-hmm. type 1, is going to be volume depleted because of the uh, polyuria from the polyphagia. They, they know. So they're drinking too much fluid because they feel this unquenchable thirst. They're urinating an excess of amount because their body is trying to kill off these ketones. Right. It can.
1: And they uh, say that in a first time crisis, it's between three and six liters that their volume depleted for the first time that we're going to see them actually in DKA. So yeah, they, they do need fluids, but yeah, well, need they, they, need.
0: and this kind of goes back to what I talked about on the Pete's pickle just recently. And that was, you know, doing appropriate fluid, uh, volume resuscitation, you know, these kids may require a 30 mil per kilo bolus. Um, but again, it's over time. I think it's kind of like even going back to burns. Um, you know, God, when we all started, I mean, 10 years ago, I guarantee you, um, because I was teaching it 10 years ago that Mm -hmm. we give fluids to burns. Oh yeah.
1: We were given bilateral 16 gauges and wide open.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's yeah, not, of course. It's not
1: good. It was causing worse problems.
0: Well, we would go, yes, we need this. They need fluids. Well, then they third-space it. They get mm-hmm. absolutely edematous throughout the body to include cerebral edema, and then right. we wonder why the patient decompensates. And the worst part, I feel, is that pre-hospitally we didn't see it.
1: Right. You're right. Like a lot of the effects of us treating a patient we never saw that we were causing that harm because it took too long as that reflexive time till till something actually happened in their body
0: yeah so many times like this kiddo had a glucose of 860 milligram per deciliter so um to convert that it's like 47 millimoles for those people who are um are doing the other side of the world right
1: everywhere else but us
0: yeah all but us we have to be special um so kind of going through that and thinking about that um you know how do we pre-hospitally um I did see a couple comments like there's not a lot we can do for that um and man I would disagree I think there is a lot we can do for an acidotic diabetic um unless unless I truly have a five minute transport time
1: right and I think early recognition and also especially recognizing that because they have been peeing all this fluid out for the past two three plus weeks, that we might be seeing like EKG changes and other things and electrolyte problems and stuff that early recognition of all that kind of stuff as pre-hospital providers, that's going to be important when they get to the hospital.
0: Yeah. And I think 90% of our job is truly recognition um and early management but we can i feel like we push people down pathways and sometimes we do it very uneducatedly Mm -hmm. um it's we throw medications at people because we think it's the right thing and it puts them down a path regardless if it was correct or not so with these type ones i know some agencies and some um places near me carry insulin Mm -hmm. so it, it is an option for these type 1 diabetics. So how do we how do we manage all of that? What and it's not an interview as much as it's just back and forth discussions. Right, so right, right. Yeah. you can throw things at me too. Yeah,
1: yeah no so the, um, the the CCT class that I have taken I've never actually given insulin myself but they kind of outlined a bunch of the the course of action on it. And it ended up being for remember, right? Uh, 0.15 units per kilogram for the initial bolus. And then I think it was 0.1 units per kilogram per hour. Um, for the first, uh, my gosh, I think it was for the first hour. And then after that you start to balance it with D5W and the insulin, just based on how, how fast they're moving and stuff.
0: Yeah. And that, that would be a pretty standard protocol um, okay. from, from what, uh, what I've read and also what's available to me. So, and with that, <clears throat> I, I wanna throw out moving somebody's glucose level is a delicate, very delicate thing.
1: Well, incredibly dangerous.
0: Oh my gosh. You can literally take somebody from normal mental status who's got elevated blood sugar and give them cerebral edema and a coma because you lower their blood sugar to a normal level too quickly.
1: Right, yeah. And something uh, for those listening, if you're, how do I say this? Um, Blood sugar, if we're dropping the blood sugar uh, in the the cerebral spinal fluid, there's a bunch of sugar that's in that CSF, and it's not moving across that that barrier. very fast and so if we're dumping fluid or excuse me dumping sugar in the body what ends up happening is all that water that we're administering that we're giving that's lowering that blood sugar if you dump their blood sugar too fast with the excessive insulin and stuff it ends up forcing um, water across into the brain and you end up getting cerebral edema that's what casey joe's talking about and that's obviously a super bad deal and i was reading some of the stats earlier on it it sounds like pediatric patients that end up getting cerebral edema, uh, it's about 24% mortality on those patients, 24% die. And if it's a, an adult, it's 35% of patients die. If they end up in that cerebral edema state, so that's that's a
0: big deal. Those are huge, huge numbers. Um, so let let's talk kind of on our pre-hospital level. I know I do flight. You do, you have critical care background,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: but let's talk on a, a BLS level to start with. Sure. Um, what do you, I feel like? What our EMTs, EMRs um, could do is easily blood glucose monitoring more than once. Yes. I agree. I, there's so often that people, I, I would put it up to saying, this is a critical vital sign that needs to be evaluated at least every 15 minutes to see if the patient is getting worse or better. Um, now, mind you, it's difficult on the BLS side. If you're not providing treatment more than a transport, it's still super important though to go, hey, the glucose level when we picked them up was 470 or uh, Me and the conversion thing. Um, (laughs) uh, So about 26. um, And then when I got to you, now it is, you know, 520, um, or, you know, 26 and a half. Um, That's showing the hospital that they are progressing in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Um, And then conversely, you can go into the ALS side or we are providing maybe fluid management for them um, you know are we doing volume boluses that are appropriate for the the height and weight of the patient, or are we just doing two sixteens wide open and then checking a glucose at the very beginning and the very end of the call?
1: right yeah, yeah, we don't want to see that that blood sugar dump too fast on the ALS side especially um, and then it also kind of makes it hard because. Uh, I don't know about your service, but every service I've worked for pretty much between 500 and 650 is about the max that the little small POC BGL machines can, can even, you know, read. And oftentimes a lot of these DKA patients are going to be well above that. So it's kind of hard at that point too. just read high.
0: Yeah. I, I remember the first time as an EMT, I was like, why is the glucometer saying hi? <laughs> it's like, what is this? And then you're like, it's 70, it's seven. No, that's as low. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, learning your equipment was fun, but, and definitely agree, um, know your equipment, know what high is on your equipment, I think is another big player um, Mm -hmm. of any level provider. If you're able to check a glucose, you need to know the limitations of your equipment because there are some glucose monitors that a low reading is 40. It'll say low, L-O.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um and there's others that it's sub 20. Um and when I say that everybody who's in Canada, let me convert. I do have an I, I literally have like an app. Um <laughs> so 40 is 2.2, uh 20 is 1.1. less like 1.1 ish. Yeah. 1.3. Um anyways, so just sorry, we're both American, so you gotta forgive us. We know our milligram per deciliters.
1: Yeah. And uh another thing too is that I think a lot of people automatically jump to the like high means like look for DKA. It can start as low as two hundred and fifty milligrams a deciliter. It can start really low. Thank like, you. And, and there's a bunch of uh things that like could be comorbidity, cool you know, factors that could be contributing to that to make it worse. I mean if this patient is a diabetic and their BGLs, you know, 275, but they've got a history of infections and stuff like that and sepsis. And I mean, they you could be dealing with stuff that is is multiple things going on. You could have sepsis on one hand and DKA, and they're working together to be killing this patient in front of you.
0: Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up that. Um, so I'm going to flip over again to that chart. So 250 milligram per deciliter. So that puts it about 13.5. I think, or 14, roughly, um, on the millimoles. And it's just something to uh, to really think about that DKA shows up at such low numbers. I can remember expecting it only above 500.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, I want to say that my EMT class, I think, and granted this was in 2000, I don't know, mid-2000s, um, I want to say that they said, like, we wouldn't probably see it until about 400.
0: Yeah. No, it was big numbers, and then all of the research that I've done, and it sounds like you're you're just like me, reading these papers that's like, no, DKA shows up as low as 250, and there's even people sub-200 that if you were to do an ISTAT and check their pH, they would already be acidotic, and then their respiratory um, pattern, rhythm, drive would also show you that they're trying to compensate and buffer, much like this case study patient. You know, his respiratory rate of 28 – is his buffering system. It's trying. It's trying to do what it can do with what little it has available left.
1: Yeah, Uh, speaking of 28, uh, do you want to talk about Kuzma respirations?
0: Yeah, um, so kind of an interesting experience for me on the Kuzma respirations. Um, I had a student who luckily he gave me full permission to tell the story, I never share his name. Um, but so he was in class, I was teaching EMT class and he looked pale. He just didn't look great. Um, and I knew he was a diabetic. He was a, he was actually a type one. And, um, I go, Hey, do you need to check your blood sugar? And he goes, it's high. I haven't taken my insulin. And I go, okay. Um, how can we, how can we figure this out and fix this? And he goes, I have to get home, but I can't, I'm already kuzma And then I stared
1: at him that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. He recognized it within himself. And then I stared at him and paid attention. And sure enough, he was Kuzma respirations, talking alert oriented, Hmm. but they were there. And my goodness, my brain went because again, I was always taught that that was something I would find in an unresponsive state Mm -hmm. or a decreased LOC state. This person was talking to me, walking, He just couldn't get in the car because he knew he was too far. So he had his girlfriend bring his insulin to the school, which was great. Um, And then he had to cautiously lower his own blood sugar. And he was only at 340. Let me, I'll get to the... the Only. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) 18.9. They all, they can forgive me for my inability to convert that quickly.
1: Uh, so I, can you describe what two small respirations is to everybody?
0: So super deep, um, but rapid. So I can't even mimic it for about 10 seconds without like making myself.
1: Get lightheaded. Yeah. Yeah. Like
0: um, and so it's that like, but my work of breathing appears hard. His looked effortless. Like it was a very unique um, experience for me because he was breathing so fast and deep, but yet it didn't appear to be increased work of breathing. Like right. when I try to mimic it, it just looks like I'm working hard to breathe.
1: Yeah, so I'm. Uh, I've got I've got a little portable whiteboard that I brought with me, and I'm drawing out kind of what people will see. So generally, we all when we're taking our breaths, we kind of have that that pause after we're done you know, that end expiratory pause. So get a little break, right? And it's not very deep or anything. We're just kind of just gently breathing. So a little whiteboard. So generally like we'll be like this on the bottom here, where we're kind of just taking a nice sloped breath and then having a nice end expiratory pause. Whereas Kuzma, it's going to be big, deep respirations and they might not be super emphatic like case Joe's saying, but they also can be, especially if, Somebody's really far down the line there, and uh, there's not really you don't have an end expiratory pause because they're they're ready to keep going and trying to keep blowing all that CO2 off.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely I'm gonna try to draw that uh, again so people can see it on here. Wish me luck.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> so it's that big, almost your end title waveform will look awful where you're you may be used to the more kind of pumpkin teeth is what I love.
1: Pumpkin um, teeth.
0: <laughs> I love to call them pumpkin teeth. I'm not good at drying uh, anything. But
1: right.
0: when you see that kusmal that it's it's very rhythmic in its pattern. Mm-hmm. With like you said, no expiratory pause. And then, you know, our pumpkin teeth, obviously there might be a little bit of shape difference based on everybody's respiratory abilities and patterns. But it's important that we that we recognize that which is why we use end title as right. much as possible i am the end title my partners get driven nuts i'm like oh we're about to fly a patient end title and they're like why and i'm like just get off my vital signs
1: yeah i mean it's a non-invasive vital sign it doesn't hurt anybody to have it on them and it tells so stinking much it's not even funny
0: so, so i'm like but- this acidotic patient what would you expect mm-hmm. to see
1: so, I mean, with an acidotic patient, we're going to end up having, so I want to say this, um, if it's a metabolic acidosis, that's obviously going to present a little bit differently than a respiratory acidosis. Right now, they're breathing awful that CO2 because they're trying to compensate. And so when their CO2 number itself is low, you can basically say that that's kind of mimicking their pH. So if it's going to be low, it's also going to be low.
0: Yeah. So
1: for us, I don't know about uh, what you guys look for, but uh, below 35 to 45 is our normal entitled CO2. Uh, For us, we pretty much have a guarantee that if it's presenting as DKA and it's below 25, that's genuinely going to be an acidotic patient.
0: Yeah. And it's important to look for those things. And when you have um, those unicorn moments, if you will, of like, I have a stable patient vitals are great, blood pressure is great, but their end title is 20. Mm-hmm. What are you missing? What what aren't you finding? Um, did you check a glucose? Have you reevaluated if you had lab values sent with you? Did you reevaluate those? Um, because the end title can be that precursor to something else that's coming.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, the only like crutch, I guess with the end title CO2, is that it can't help you differentiate, it can, but it can't help you truly differentiate between a metabolic versus a respiratory. I mean, we don't have access to be able to see what somebody's bicarb is in the field unless you've got an iSTAT. stat. And so at that point, kind of, you're, you're just having to basically use it as a piece of the puzzle and combine it with their heart rate, their respiratory rate, the rest of their history and stuff like that. And it absolutely is a huge piece of the puzzle, though.
0: Yeah, and I totally agree. It is one of those where you get you hit a stop mm-hmm. uh, with end title because it can only take you so far without those other values. Um, oh, absolutely. And you shouldn't treat end title independent. Um, no. It's. I remember when end title. Man, again, here comes the dinosaur. I can remember when they added end title. <laughs> I can remember when they added uh, took the paddles away. <laughs>
1: uh.
0: I miss those, um, but with end title. Um,
1: There's nothing like rubbing them together, right?
0: Put that jelly on. Put <laughs> the jelly on, um, but with the end title, um, people, you know, if it's high, we were taught breathe faster. Right. Oh, don't <laughs> stop doing bad habits just because we didn't know any better. It's high for a reason.
1: Right. Yeah. There was a good book that we were given in uh, p school that was called, I want to say it's entitled the king of uh, vital signs. Have you read yeah. that one?
0: Yeah. It's, it's like
1: a little booklet about this big and it was probably the best reading I had in the entire paramedic school. It, it was awesome.
0: I I had there's another one. that's basically like entitled for dummies mm-hmm. and it was written by a paramedic. And I was like, Oh, okay.
1: So you speak in our language.
0: Yeah. You speak in my language. Yeah. Um, so let's kind of get back. Let's wrap back to um, yeah. kind of talking about what I think, what, what uh, oh, I'm hitting buttons on my screen without trying. I think running into some issues are um, not understanding what the hospital is going to do. And I know we have a lot of people who do the IFT transports as well. Mm-hmm. Who are, um, Chance, I missed the pack 10 too, buddy. Um, <laughs> but I know there's a lot of people who are, um, you know, on those interfacility cars and have um, may or may not have the capabilities of taking insulin. I know most places that's a critical care transport, yeah. um, but there are areas where if you're it, you're it. So, um, kind of talk, let's talk a little bit about what we would expect. Um, so we've initiated IV resuscitation, hopefully utilizing lactated ringers if you have. Yeah. So you want to talk about LR a little bit with type one?
1: yeah um I, LR is so huge um i don't know why it's not a standard you know across the United States and across the world to be using l r s uh like we were talking about earlier with um saline it's just chloride and salt i mean it's i mean, it's even chloride and sodium um whereas with lactated ringers it is i mean they have potassium in it it's got um uh, calcium, there's sodium in it, and these patients that we're talking about. So um, Casey Joe was talking about polyuria. So basically, the sugar, the body wants to pee all that sugar out, and when they pee all that sugar out, that water wants to follow it, and when that water goes out, then unfortunately, all the electrolytes that are diffusing across, you know, our nephrons and stuff like that, those are those are coming out too. So a lot of these patients depending on how acidotic they are and how acute it was, they might end up with hyperkalemia um, on the opposite side. If this has been a slow moving you know, thing over a good amount of time, this patient's likely going to be hypokalemic. So they're going to end up not only receiving insulin, they are possibly going to also be receiving, you know, uh, oral potassium and other stuff like that. They're going to have all their electrolytes managed in the hospital setting as well. So that's why we don't want to acutely adjust somebody in the field without the ability to have all these repeat labs that they're doing in the hospital. And, um, we don't want to give them a unbalanced crystalloid that's five and a half pH. Um, that's just going to worsen their. So, so yeah, so that's why we're trying to chase using lactated ringers.
0: Yeah, well, and LR is definitely, um, kudos to Bryce. He typed out exactly what's in LR. So oh,
1: thanks, Bryce.
0: Um, but exact, it, it is exactly that. Like Realizing that glucose is not the only uh, element, if you will. It's, well, it's glucose, but it's not the only component of the blood that is going to be having a problem. So um, remember all the polys when it comes to type 1, the polydipsia, polyur, uh phasia, polyuria. Mm -hmm. Um, those are the big, like, you know, hammer it. If you hammer in on those facts and get elevated glucose, like you said earlier, though, don't rule out the sepsis. Don't rule out those other things. Um, could still be adrenal related. Many times with adrenal crisis, you'll notice a hypoglycemic event, not hyper, but not always. There are not, nothing is every, all, always every time. So, um, and then other things to ask or look into is visual changes, because um, sugar is very mean to the optic nerve. So okay. I, I like to refer to it as glass in the, in the veins, uh, little shards of glass that without insulin to wrap around it to get it to go uh, where, into the organs and into the tissues where it needs to go. It's just these little shards of glass running around, uh, scraping and scratching and doing damage. So the optic nerve has a really hard time with uh, glucose. So visual changes may show up a lot sooner and in younger um, patients.
1: There's something called uh, hyperglycemic retinopathy, which over long-term periods of time, just like Casey Joe's talking about. So for the the more acute kind of thing, the short-term thing, um, she's talking about changes where they'll end up having, you know, vision changes like blurred vision and stuff like that that's starting to come on. And that's going to be ha- happening from the, you know, the acute hyperglycemia. But if somebody's hyperglycemic for a long period of time, has a long history of not managing their diabetes and stuff like that, then it progresses into that uh, hyperglycemic retinopathy, where basically the retinas are now getting damaged from uh, long-term exposure to high sugars.
0: Yeah, and it's important to ask those questions if there's spots in their visual field, if they had any sort of like blindness, any, any change, um, you know, that's another big player. That's another piece of this puzzle of questions, answers, and asking. Um, mm-hmm. And gosh, I mean, I do think to myself, as far as going back to that fluid resuscitation, you know, sugar binds up in the kidneys and creates all sorts of problems. That's why we know many diabetics end up with renal disease, chronic insufficiencies, and acute um, renal insufficiency, Uh, it's directly related to those hyperglycemic states for a prolonged period of time. However, three weeks can be prolonged in certain lives. So don't rule out the damage being done um, and ensure the fluid boluses are going in. So I know some people get into the, well, I'm just an EMT or I'm just an EMR. Well, can you get them to definitive care um, or ALS care? What can happen first? Can I get them to a hospital to manage them? Or do I need to get a paramedic or a, you know, PCP or an ACP to show up and get them to the hospital? What is the best time management for that patient? Um, So those are things to think about. And I know I put a poll, um, I, we, (laughs) it's our case study. We put a poll up of, Priority transport versus um treat and transport. Um and it almost ended up literally 50-50. So kind of what are your feels on that? I have I have like 60 different, you know, thoughts on it, but Yeah, I do
1: don't you- know. I was actually I was actually really kind of surprised at that. And I guess I I kind of wonder if a lot of these people that were posting the stay, stay and play, if you will, um, were more so like okay, I think we should stay on scene because we don't have, you know, an acute hypotensive state uh, you know, it's not severely altered mental status. So I want to sit on scene and get more data. I want to get, you know, EKGs and BGLs and an SpO2 and all this other kind of stuff. And from that uh, standpoint, I agree. I absolutely agree. But then on the other hand too, because I guess I'm kind of 50, 50 as well. I personally don't carry insulin. And I don't have any way to truly affect this patient besides a, you know, 20 ml per kg over the course of an hour of fluid bolus. And so I guess at that point, as soon as I identify what it is, then I think that we need to start moving, especially if he started to you know, degrade in his mental status and stuff.
0: Yeah. Um, so I, I agreed with both sides. I, I actually super enjoyed that it was 50 50 uh, mm-hmm. because I feel like it gave people Discussion points and a start off, a jump, if you will. Um, you know, obviously, on this, I would say that this to me is a priority patient, not a priority transport for me. Right. And what I mean by it is exactly what you just said. Like, this is a sick kid. This kid has a lot going on that needs to be managed, but managed appropriately. Right. Um, so, so, would I want to get more information? Yeah. Can I do that in the back of my bus? all day long. Um, You know, I'm a believer that there is a lot we can do with four wheels or six wheels, depending on the size of your rig um, moving forward versus sitting on scene and not getting them to definitive care. So I, I like the idea. There's a lot of people. And I know when you're a BLS provider, this is a code transport because you need to get them to some sort of definitive care that can stabilize them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know,
0: um, on the ALS side of things, you might stay and play a little bit, but I, I would say I would cautiously do that. Um,
1: I think the biggest reason I would stay is just for that EKG, um, and I don't think that a lot of people, when they hear diabetes, think of EKGs. But out of all of the electrolytes that we're going to be, you know, that's going to be a big problem for that patient. Uh, pH screws with potassium. It it totally messes with potassium. And then um, excessive urination, that polyuria, that messes with potassium as well. And that's going to be the electrolyte that's, you know, going to possibly send this patient into a cardiac problem. And so I would absolutely stay and get that 12 lead at least just to see the T waves, just to see if they have peak T waves, if they have U waves, you know, widened QRSs, um and, and also, you know, look and see if they've got flattened T waves and stuff like that. And uh I don't know about your um your protocols or your area or whatnot. My area doesn't do this, but I know there's some areas in the US where if you have signs of acidosis and widened QRSs, you're allowed to give a bolus of um you know bicarbonate as long as it's you know it's a small bolus and you know, stretched out over time and stuff like that. So they might get sodium bicarb or something like that. So I think, and then also just recognizing that there's a huge risk in a patient that has, you know, PTTs and U waves. And if you've got a prolonged transport, yeah, getting on the road ASAP is going to be a big deal.
0: Oh, and a hundred percent agree. And I think more so than anything, people like to take this pediatric population and go not cardiac. Um, right. And you're so right and you're so spot on because you can start telling yourself and yes, there are some areas that are doing the bicarb, um, you know, and calcium and a lot of ours is based on our medical direction. Um, It is something we do, but not without direct medical director, you know, uh, online yeah words words get hard for right. me online
1: medical direction i got gotcha.
0: you <laughs> <Like, laughs> out of order you know it's great um but and uh amy put a great comment totally agree i agree with you i'd probably take you know an extra five minutes or so to gather a little bit more information but i don't have a reason to sit and play i don't no. have a reason um to, uh, kind of waste this kid's time. He needs an endocrinologist. Mm -hmm. Um, like,
1: yeah, (laughs) he's going to be there for a while too.
0: Yeah. And then also, you know, kind of that player that I think we forget a lot is that, um, you are the first start of a of a huge diagnosis in this kid's life. Right. Um, so be mindful of your words. Um
1: that's yes, absolutely. I can't but, agree more.
0: Like the father is going to just get punched in the face with my child as a type one diabetic with words that we say. Um, this kid may or may not understand what that means. Odds are he will. Um, but just our words. No, yeah, really that dad's gonna realize
1: are. yeah, that dad's gonna realize um that it's like, holy cow, this kid's life has changed for the rest of his life now. Like yeah. it's changed.
0: Well, and so does the dad's life,
1: Mm -hmm. um,
0: the financial implications, all these other stressors that that I'm fortunate not to know. Um, I'm not diabetic. I don't have, uh, anyone directly in my line of income that's diabetic. Um, so, you know, I think that's something that we need to be mindful that we are, our words can do a lot of damage. And if you don't know, don't assume and don't make those statements. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: and I think that a lot of these things, you can absolutely tell them what's going on without, you know, force feeding down their throat a, a an ill-sounding diagnosis. You can say, Yeah, I'm really concerned that he might be having a bit of an insulin problem. I think he needs to go in, you know, yeah. and like explain it that way of like, you know, like, hey, I'm concerned because his blood sugar is super high and his blood pressure is a little low, he's breathing super fast. We do need to go in and he needs to go to the hospital because I think he's having a problem with his insulin. We don't need to give him that, that big punch to the face because now he's going to be driving behind the angles for however long. And all he's going to be thinking about is all those things you're talking about Um, without even it, it being a guarantee that that's what it is without that truly final definitive care, the labs and, you know, the doctor's diagnosis and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and unless you're doing an A1C in the field, which I don't see any of us doing. No. Um, you really are like throwing darts, right? Um, you can have an abnormal glucose level without being a type 1 diabetic.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, somebody could have gotten into mom's medications, you know. Yeah. Somebody could have have a, a, a severe infection that's now affected that. There could even be something else. My, uh, my grandma actually had a tumor on her pancreas that was excreting insulin, She wasn't diabetic at all, but because the tumor was excreting insulin, she kept having hypoglycemic attacks. Yeah. So, I mean, so many things can happen.
0: Yeah. So, um, I think we touched on all the things that I was really going for. Um, The only thing I'd like to throw out, I guess, is um, it's okay to go down the rabbit hole that the dad fed, you know, Mm -hmm. concerned that he might have taken something. Um, But I like to point out that we can get bystander bias. Really, super easy, and then miss the boat of diagnosis and I swear somebody put the comment on there we don't diagnose, yes, we do all the time we don't right. get to put an official diagnosis, but we do differentials and we isolate things down, and odds are we're right most of the time, um, but be be cautious on taking especially with parents, um, taking face value of comments like ingestion stuff. Right. Um, Because um, there may be backstory to it or not, you know, I would throw out if you get the opportunity to have a one-on-one with dad away from the patient and then one-on-one with the patient, um, you may be able to elicit that information um, and the why behind it. But don't chase a rabbit hole just because somebody said it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think the the big thing that I would push home after this is all kind of over and done is that. A fluid bolus is a good thing, but I had a doc once tell me that uh, anything that happens slowly needs to be fixed slowly. Anything that happens fast needs to be fixed fast. And like at first I was like, that's super broad. That's like probably the most broad statement I think I've ever heard anybody say. But like the farther I get in medicine in this, it, it seems to just continue to hold true over and over and over again. Somebody that's a septic patient they're not going to just get antibiotics and get kicked out of the hospital the next day. Same thing with this. I mean, this patient's been going through this whole process, this autoimmune disorder that's now killed his, his beta cells and his pancreas. This is not just like a yesterday thing. This is a long-term thing. He's going to need slow management, bring it all back full circle, super, super slow. I mean, it's even the same now with like heart attacks. A heart attack is a super quick thing, a clot and it's hurting and they fix it and they're going home the next day. It's amazing. But yeah. these, these have, slow processes need to be fixed slowly.
0: We and, have same day returns for STEMIs.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty it's crazy.
0: crazy. Like yeah, you had even, a heart attack at eight o'clock this morning, get out, <laughs> you're safe. Yeah. Bye.
1: Yeah, it's amazing to me. But yeah, and uh, fluid bullets, I don't know um, what your guys' protocol is. We don't have a protocol specific to this, but all the education I've ever read was just basically 20 mLs per kilogram over the course of an hour is what they need from us. And that's pretty much it.
0: So you may go to the little bit of a higher end of 30 mLs per kilo. Okay. The same length of time, um, but you know over an hour. You mm-hmm. may do uh, a little higher bolus for these. Um, they, they get treated similar to sepsis on that 30 mil per kilo side. But again, yeah. watch your patient, right? Um, right. If they're respond, fluid responsive at a 20 mil per kilo bolus rate, Don't. there's no reason to speed it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And I just want you to say that again, what that doctor told you. Because I I, it should be printed in every EMS hermetic and physi I don't care every clinical site known to man
1: yeah if it if it happens slow fix it slow it's basically what he said
0: yeah i think that those are the most profound words if it started if it came on slow fix it slow um, kind of doing the converse real quick on the hypoglycemic i know that's the other side of this but it is an acute event but remember it typically didn't happen in a two second push, IV, hint, hint. Yes, we need to correct their sugar, but we could do it a little bit slower than we have in the past. Like, how many amps of D50, which by the way is 25 grams. I have a big hang up on that. Any of my students would know, don't tell me an amp of anything. Tell me what you gave, Right. Um, but 25 grams of D50, just push that peanut butter right into that vein.
1: Oh yeah. And now all of a sudden they went from 30 all the way up to 300.
0: Yeah. It's and like, why don't they feel well?
1: Yeah. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. I love that um, our area has pretty much exclusively gone to D10 and it's just super slow. You put it in and then you start to let it work. You manage their airway, give them some oxygen, you know, help them breathe if you need to while it's slowly working. Cause otherwise you get these big spikes. You get, you know, it shoots up in sugar and then their body's trying to compensate and it shoots down and then they just can't manage it. And then they're actually finding that like hospital management of that patient is even harder if we, if they end up getting admitted and stuff like that, because we just caused this, you know, this oscillation of those sugars, the body's trying to figure itself out instead, like you're saying, nice and slow, ramp it right back up.
0: Yeah, and I see uh, Sue put on there, her system's gone to D10, so is mine. Um, I think a lot are going to D10. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, it's so much better for the patient. You're giving them that little bit of volume resuscitation that they need, along with the glucose. Um, And then Bryce brings up the extra, uh, extravasational injury. Agreed. Um, I have seen one patient who had uh, infiltrated D50. Mm -hmm. wound that actually never healed uh, that patient was uh diabetic renal failure uh was transported frequently for dialysis and um not me i'm not knocking the medic that it happened to because i have no idea the circumstances behind it i just know what the what the injury looked like um and subsequently loss of limb due to the um d50
1: the injury oh, into the, the, the tissue exor-ization,
0: yeah yeah
1: exor-ization. that's one word i can never say
0: uh it's, it's no. say worcestershire sauce or whatever no, yeah, exactly yeah
1: yeah <laughs> yeah no i mean you're, you're right like if they're already diabetic they already have circulation problems so they're going to get more stasis of that like it's that stuff's not going to distribute as easy it's already necrotic to the tissue that's even worse because they can't distribute anything yeah, yeah it's terrible I'm, I'm super glad about d 10
0: yeah, me too. And I, I think we are progressing that way. And if your agency isn't that way, um, definitely push push for it. It's snowing. It is snowing at my house right now. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Sorry. Shiny object. Um, but if your agency doesn't have it, you know, push for it. The other thing I would say um, you can safely do, and it's not outside most protocols, go higher in your IV line. If you still are given D50. Mm-hmm. leave your IV line running higher in the line do small aliquots until you get normal mentation um if you're required to give the full 25 grams sorry that eye roll let me pull those back uh, <laughs> if you're required to give it all just give it slower over time and a long time these are not calls that need to take two minutes we right. do need to get them sugar, and it is a priority to get them sugar. They're cooking their brain, but you don't need to do it in two minutes. You need to get access, you need to provide, and same for this kid. You need access, you need to provide fluids, but you don't need to correct it too quickly. That is not your job. That is an ICU's job. ERs don't even play with this. No. They'll initially do. No, an
1: hour in the ER and they'll go up.
0: Oh, if they can. Yep. I mean, my poor little hospital where I works on an island and they don't have an ICU, so they have to do a lot more stabilization before mm-hmm. we medevac the patient. Um, but let me tell you, those patients are like, DKA, it's like record-setting interfacility facility transport time. <laughs> and then when you get them that nuance set in the field, because we do both, um, mm-hmm. field and interfacility, facility you get that nuance set in the field. It's amazing what happens if you try to take them to the wrong facility. They're like, mm-mm, mm-mm. we do not have a pediatric ICU. You are going for us to Seattle, which is, you know, a, a significant flight um, for the patient and their family. We're talking 50 uh, minute flight time. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's a couple hours to get uh, family to them. So, you know, think logistically, think about these patients. Appropriate facility is huge, 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 huge. Um, this is a 13 year old. So, if you don't have a pediatric ICU, um, start thinking about where that is in location for your patient. Um, uh, And do not say the words like, this kid's going to have to go to the ICU. Again, the parent's going to go, what? Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just say the most appropriate facility.
0: Yeah. Appropriate facility is great. If you have the opportunity, if you know, like, I know where my PEDS ICUs are, Mm -hmm. I will... Like, if it's a new onset in the field, we're going to fly them to that further um, hospital because they will get transferred to that hospital because it's a specialty center that that's what they do. Um, mm-hmm. So we will we will take that step out. Um, but if you don't have that opportunity, at least get them to some place that can start stabilization.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And everybody, especially on a 13-year-old, but everybody should be able to at least start that stabilization.
0: For sure. Well... You guys, we've kept you on here for pretty close to an hour now. Um, it's been great to talk with Kevin um, and introduce him as one of our new Master Your Medics instructors. You'll see a lot more of his uh, epic mustache that he's working with there. I don't have one, sorry.
1: I don't mean, worry, just, uh, it's not gonna last. It's not gonna last. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, so we're gonna pop off here. And um, yeah, I hope you all have a great day. And Yeah.
1: It was nice to meet everybody. Thank you guys for uh, hanging out with us.
0: All right. Take care. Bye.